Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Ryan Anderson. I am not on the pastoral staff here, but I uh, am welcomed uh, by that staff to come and uh, open up God's Word to you today. We, um, my wife and I, Laura, are much beloved by this body here, and we are so grateful to be able to be back this morning. Y'all have meant the world to us, and so we, it's a labor of love to come and uh, open up God's Word to you. So it is just a real pleasure to be back with you. My, my job is, for those of you who don't know me, I work with RUF at TCU. I'm a campus minister there, and this is a ministry that you, as members of this church, support. And I've come with good report that um, God is at work there, that He is drawing many students to Himself, that Young men and women are growing in their faith. They are asking questions about who God is and how they might serve Him and their various vocations one day, how they may love each other. And it is a beautiful thing on that campus. So a huge and hearty thank you for all the prayers that you give to us and all your support that you give. There's just no way that uh, TCU would have RUF were it not for you. And so I'm profoundly grateful this morning for each of you. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19 and uh, a little bit of 20. This morning, and so if you have a Bible, would you turn there, um, and we'll we'll read a little bit from there. You'll notice in your bulletin that it says selections from Exodus nineteen and twenty. We're just going to read a few verses, but as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of uh, what's been going on. If you've been hit or miss here at Fort Worth Pres lately, uh, Ryan and Darwin, the pastors here, have been taking you through the Book of Exodus, looking at this theme of from slavery to worship, God's people, as you remember are being set free, and they're being set free to worship Him. And so we come today to the close of that uh, narrative. We're going to close the the series here. I don't know what Darwin was thinking. You know what they say about saving certain things to the last, I suppose. So I'm honored to be here doing that. We're going to read from Exodus 19, the first few verses there. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and then we'll read a little bit from 20 as well. Hear now God's word to us. On the, third, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people And set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now let's jump ahead to the first couple of verses there in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Amen. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us to understand what he would have us to know this morning, shall we? 
Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are kind to us, that you have spoken to us, that we might know you. Thank you that um, you love us enough to do that. We ask now that you would, by your spirit, soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we might behold wondrous and beautiful things out of your law. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would um, keep us attentive to your grace for your people and that we might marvel at the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, that we might be caught up in wonder, love, and praise at all that he has done for us. So would you help us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, um, one of the things that I wanted to say about this text is, is that new freedom, new freedom can be a hard thing, something hard to get used to. One might think that, you know, freedom is, hey, that'd be great. That would be something easy, that it would bring about new ease. But it's not always the case. Take the NPR, NPR story that ran a couple of years ago. They followed a 70-year-old man named John Huckleberry. He had been in prison for 35 years and soon to get out. The story follows him as he acclimates to this new life. Things like cell phones that take pictures are new to him. But what is harder, what is harder than that and come to terms with the world around him is him trying to adjust to the new life that the new freedom has brought him. Many of you know, like I mentioned, that I work with college students. So one of the major pastoral issues that I get to work with and to see is walking with these now freshmen in college as they seek to learn a new freedom away from home. Some know how to do laundry. Some don't. Some know about credit cards and the incredible interest that they charge. And others have no idea about that. A part of pastoral care is walking with them through this new season of life that they are in. There is more freedom, but that doesn't mean that life is always easier at every turn. And lastly, and maybe most horrifying, perhaps we've all heard of stories of women who have been trapped in the you know, sex trade industry. The day comes where they're liberated and they're set free, but because there aren't systems to help them in this new life outside, in this new freedom, their only recourse is to hop back in of their own free will to slavery all over once again. You see, all of these stories make us ask the question, how is new freedom to be handled? Or better yet, what does it look like to live as a free people? And may I suggest that this question isn't just for parolees, college freshmen, and women liberated from slavery. It's actually an issue that every person who has been liberated by the grace of God in Christ has and will wrestle with whether they can articulate it or not. Let me, let me explain what I mean. As I mentioned, Darwin and Ryan has been taking you through the book of Exodus. God's people have been living in Egypt for 400 plus years. They had become slaves to the Egyptian people, but such would not always be their lot. By his grace, God would raise up a deliverer, this man named Moses that we've been encountering over and over again. And through him, through a series of unprecedented events, like swarms of locusts, like the death of Egypt's firstborn sons, and the splitting of the Red Sea, God had delivered his people. He had brought them out. Indeed, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Yahweh had delivered a people to himself. But now, as they are free, it's not as though things have exactly gone swimmingly or perfectly for them. Even though they have been delivered, the people have doubted the provision and the protection that God had promised. They have grumbled against him, wishing what? 
We want to be back in slavery. Even though they were free, they longed to live as an enslaved people. Even though God had made them his own, they were content doing life without him. And it's in this way that everyone who is a Christian can can relate. That despite being saved by God's grace, we'd rather be enslaved by living by ourselves and for ourselves. And make no mistake about it. One of the things that you will find in this text is that living for yourself is the most dehumanizing thing that you can do. Do you know that? The more we live for our own interests, the more we live for our own glory, the less human we become. Well, how would God respond? Though he had rescued them and they would respond with cries of we were better off without you. Will he give up on them? And the answer in Exodus 19 is this. No, in no way. Instead, God graciously gives them a way to flourish instead. So how were they to live? How were they now to live with this newfound freedom? That's the question that our text in 19 and 20 begin to address. The point that it makes is clear that God who delivers them provides a way for flourishing now that they are free. And that way, dear ones, is called his law. His law. Isn't that amazing? That the way to freedom, the way to freedom, the way to flourish is through his law. And it provides the instruction and contours for flourishing life. Not just for themselves, but as verse 5 told us, for all the earth. But before the instruction properly begins in chapter 20... God wants them and us to understand a few things about this law that he is to deliver. And here they are, and it's what we'll look at tonight. First of all, that rescue, the rescue that God brings, that rescue precedes obedience. It precedes obedience. Secondly, that rescue produces obedience. And then lastly, that rescue passes through. It passes through obedience. I needed a third piece, so sorry about that. We had to deal with it. So there it is. That it proceeds, it produces, and it passes through. We'll take a look at each one of those. But let's start with the idea that rescue precedes obedience. What do I mean? Well, take a look with me there at verse 4. Do you see it? He says this, that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In short, he is saying, God is saying that God saves and delivers Israel before the law is given. We find that law and after what I read, uh, beginning in chapter 20, verse 3, before God instructs him on how to live, he has already saved them. And this means that obedience to the law is not, is not what saves them. Many Christians think that the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, that people were saved by keeping the law. And in the New Testament, that the principle of grace sort of takes over. But that is not true. God has always rescued his people, not on the principle of their obedience, but by his sheer mercy. Verse 4 tells us that God brought him, brought us, brought you to himself. They didn't earn their way to him. They were delivered freely. And then right there in, verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 2, right before the Ten Commandments are given, do you notice what he said? Look there. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out. Grace, deliverance, rescue precedes 
Not only the obedience the law requires, but the very law itself. And dear ones, I think this is telling because it tells us a principle. That life before God, that that phrase quorum Deo, that all of life before God begins with seeing who or whose you are before, before you're told how to live. God says, you're mine. I brought you to myself. This leads one theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, who I love to read. He writes this, this idea about being told how to live our life and lives of holiness and lives of obedience, how that relates to who we are. He uses two key words, and I'll give them to you real quick. This idea of imperative and indicative. I know we've spoken about that before here at the church, but the imperative is those words that are given to drive us to do something. Go, sit, eat, those commands. And the indicatives are those things that are true about us, who we are, what God says about us. And Ferguson says this, he says, the great gospel imperatives to holiness are ever rooted in the indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives woven into the warp and woof of what it means to be holy is the great groundwork that the self-existent, thrice holy, triune God in himself, by himself and for himself committed himself and all three persons of his being to bringing about the holiness of his own people. This is the Father's purpose, the Son's purchase, and the Spirit's ministry. Ferguson is saying what Exodus 19 is saying, that who we are as God's beloved people is the only thing that will have the power to produce true obedience anyways. So we must start with who we are. I don't know how many of you saw it this week, but there was a teacher, a 26-year-old man who teaches down in Jacksonville, Florida. His name is Chris, Chris Ulmer. And Ulmer teaches special education to a group of elementary kids who are mildly autistic and have learning disabilities due to light head trauma. Every day before their class begins, he starts out reminding these children of who they are. Why? Well, he says because he knows that unless they know who they are, they'll never grow and learn. It's the imperative. It's the indicative, rather, before the imperative. He starts the class like this. He sits down, and every single one of his students walks up right in front of his chair. He looks them in their eyes, and he says this. You, sir, saying this to a boy that's eight years old. You, sir, are an amazing student. You're funny. You're very smart. You do a great job every day. And you make everyone laugh because you are so silly. Thanks for being a great student. And then he high fives the student. And then the next student walks up and he repeats that. And for 10 minutes of every day before every class starts, the teacher unloads these true statements about who these children are. Now, can you believe that? Do you know what he's doing? Do you know what he's doing? He's setting these kids free. He's reminding them of who they are. Because he knows, he knows that identity will always precede performance. It will always do. And the same thing goes for us. That God knows that who we are, that who is we belong to, that we will never obey rightly unless we know who we are. That's what this is telling us. That obedience always is preceded by 
our deliverance and rescue. I just want to ask you, what if we live life like that? I mean, think about that. Imagine if teachers did that with their students every day. Imagine if parents did that with their kids. Imagine you, if your boss sat you down for five minutes before every day and told you how great of an employee you were and how valuable you were to the company and how wonderful you are as a human being and how proud he was of you to have you working for him. Would that change the way you did your job? Oh, I think so. It's just a principle that's embedded deeply into the scriptures. Imagine if God did that with you. That long before he laid out any commands for you to live by, he just looked you right in the eyes and said this. Just so you know, you belong to me today. You're mine and I delight in you. I mean, that is staggering. Listen to one writer. I don't agree with everything he says. He says about this. And yes, I'm belaboring this first point for a reason. It needs to be belabored. Listen to what one writer Robert Capone says. He writes this about the recovery of grace, this recovery of God's wonderful statements about who we are apart from how we have obeyed or behaved. Listen to what he says. He says the Reformation, that time when grace came flooding back into the church. I love it. He says the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 15-year-old, 200-proof grace. That bottle after bottle of pure distillate scripture, one sip of which would convince, you, would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven, but worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement, listen to this, that the saved were home before they started. That grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality, could ever be allowed to enter into the case. Isn't that profound? Isn't that amazing? That that is what God is telling us here. That he brings us to himself. He brings us to himself. That grace precedes this obedience. Well, it's not all that is said. Because it's interesting to see that as soon as it tells us that he is, that we are accepted by his sheer mercy and grace, that accepted people are now given a way or a command to live. And it is this sense that we can talk about rescue producing obedience. This leads us to our second point, that rescue produces obedience. Look with me there in verses 5 and 6. He says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In short, this is telling us that when God delivers us, we will obey him. That we will fall in line with his law. Exodus tells us that that though that the, the rescued people, that through this law, that the rescued people will reflect something of the lawgiver in their lives. The law that follows in verse 20, in chapter 20 rather, is just that. A demonstration of the good, right, and holy character of God. God has rescued his people into his family. And now they are to bear out that family resemblance to the world. They walk in his ways and are shaped into the sort of people that they're meant to be. You see it right there in verse 5. We see Moses saying, if you obey my voice, 
You'll be my treasured possession. In verse 6, my holy nation. Now that God has rescued his people, they are to obey and live holy lives. Being a holy nation, as many of you know, to be holy is to be set apart for certain purposes. And we're going to take a look at what those purposes were in just a minute. But God's people were and are to live holy lives. Now, I think as soon as you read this, it's easy to read and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Put the brakes on just a second there, preacher boy. Because what this text says is this. It says, if you will obey. If you do these things, then you'll be my people. So how do we deal with what I've just told you and what this text is saying now? How do we deal with the conditionality that seems to be present in this text? Well, the way the Bible speaks about is this, is that we live out our lives precisely because we are saved. Our obedience doesn't merit us one darn thing. It just doesn't. Rather, it demonstrates It demonstrates that we have, in fact, been saved. The blessing of the covenant are received by faith. And as one of my seminary professors was fond of saying, being called from the foundation of the world doesn't matter one whit if you don't embrace the covenant promises from the heart. The idea then there is this, that our obedience, while it merits us nothing, It is the thing through which we demonstrate and receive all of the promises that God does for us on our behalf. It is in this way that God says that they are to be a treasured possession and a holy nation. One picture I love to think about is this image of Eustace in the voyage of the Don Treader. Kids, you may remember this as you know this story. We're looking at, think with me, just remember with me for a second, this picture of how the law reflects God's character and how by living in it, by obeying it, by following in lives of holiness, that we become who we're really meant to be. We're really meant to be humans in this way by following God's law. We remember the story of, God, of the, the voyage in the Don Treader. Eustace, that mean and uh, ugly cousin, he wakes up one day because he's been sleeping on treasure. And because he has loved treasure so much, As he looks down, he sees that his hand is a dragon's claw. And that he realizes that, oh my goodness, I have been turned into a dragon. And so he begins to say, I need to get the skin off. I need to get this dragon skin off. And he reasons that if he can just claw the skin off, surely the boy that he once was will surface. And as he claws and claws one layer after another, more and more dragon skin appears. His healing was not what he expected. One day, Eustace, though, comes face to face with you-know-who, the great and powerful kingly lion named Aslan. And longing to be rid of his dragonly flesh, he turns to the mighty lion. And Aslan speaks, you'll have to let me undress you. Well, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But I turned into a boy again. Lewis continues, it would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. 
But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. What is Lewis saying? He's saying, you want to be human again? You want to know what true humanity is like? You want to be free? There's a, there's a model for our flourishing. It comes in God's good and perfect and holy law. That merits us nothing. But shapes the contours of our life. That we might reflect something of his character. Something of what we're truly meant to be. And that comes to us. It, the obedience It comes to us. Our obedience to the law comes. It follows. It is produced by the rescue. It is the fact that God has saved us that that obedience flows from. This is what the law is after. Our obedience, our holiness is about our humanness. It is about, it isn't primarily an arbitrary set of laws that God gives to test us by. Rather, bound up in God's good law and our obedience to it, is becoming human again. So how that this apply to us? We need to understand that holiness is more than simply saying no to what God has said no to. It is that. But I think the church needs to recover a vision for holiness that will mean beginning saying yes to all the good, true, and beautiful things that God in His manifold wisdom says yes to. The best. You know what? Christians ought to be the best artists. They ought to be the best statesmen. They ought to be the best educators. Because they understand, they, they have a vision and a picture of how life is flourishing the best according to God's own ways and principles. This is the picture that he, lies, that he puts forth. Here is what he's telling us. God makes his people his own. Not when they have attained perfection, but when they're at their worst. He never, ever, ever asks people to clean up morally or attain some sort of religious perfection to get his heart. God's rescue, his delight in us comes before we begin obeying him. And it's through that that the heart is changed to is changed for a proper motivation to begin to obey anyways. Well, let's take a last look here at this picture, this idea of rescue passing through obedience. What do I mean by rescue passing through obedience? We'll take a look there at verse six. He says this, and you, you all, y'all, y'all shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses, the writer of Exodus, is saying this, that once grace comes crashing into your life, that it doesn't stop with you. That you were meant to be a conduit through which that rescue flows to the entire nations. To all of the world to see that Yahweh is king. That he is God. That he is the one who loves this world. And he is rescuing it and bringing it back to himself. You might remember that great promise. That great promise from Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. Where he speaks to Abraham, God does. And he says this. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Here it is. So that, so that you will be a blessing. This is that same imagery and language that the Apostle Peter picks up in his first letter in chapter 2. Where he says that we are a kingdom of priests. And this is the picture. As we take up obedience... As we take up to being shaped and structured and conformed by God's right and true law. That we become 
conduits of love and grace to the world. Why is that so important? Well, think about what priests did. You remember this, that priests were mediators. They were go-betweens. They mediated God's presence to the people. And they mediated God's, the people in front of God's face. That's the picture that every single one of you, if you are in Christ today, is the way that you are called to live. This is who you are before the watching world to be a conduit of this grace, of this rescue. That is why holiness is so important because holiness is connected to mission. In such a way that when we don't live as the way that God has called us to live and to be and to do, that mission is thwarted. You see, what does, what does the city of Fort Worth need? Men and women shaped by God's law. Men and women shaped by his character for their good, for their sake. Think about it. That New Testament um, statement about who we are. You remember Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just given the Beatitudes. And then he looks and he says this, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It brings out the flavor, right? It brings out what's there. In the same way, you and I are to be men and women who go out into the world and bring about the blessing that God has intended for it. That God works through us. That rescue flows through us. Think about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, just a few chapters later, Moses says this. He says this about the Lord. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. The aim is always and always has been for the entire world to be blessed. And we, dear ones, are that kingdom of priests corporately. The, the blessing flows through. I want to begin to ask you, do you see the great and high privilege of being God's reconciling agents to the world around us? Yes, he by his spirit certainly does that. But we are used in that wonderful task. You want to see Fort Worth reached for him? You want to see schools changed and businesses made beautiful? As we begin to live and to love as God has called us to, being shaped by his law in this way. That is where true freedom is. That is where true liberation is had. That is life in new freedom. That's what it is. Well, there's a tension that runs through all of the scripture, and that is, does salvation come because of obedience or not? I mean, we just read it. I brought you out on Wigo's Lings, but if. I brought you out, but if. I brought you out, but if. And all throughout the Old Testament, you read it and you go, is God, I mean, is he blessing his people just because? Or is it their, or do they need to obey to stay in this whole covenant of grace thing? And there's a tension that goes all the way through the Old Testament until it gets resolved in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. You see, at the cross, there's a question. And the answer to that question is that salvation is conditioned upon obedience. And the answer is this. It is both yes and no. It is conditioned on obedience to the law. Yes, but not yours. 
It's on Jesus's. And know because you're the one that receives the rescue that Jesus purchases. This means that where the law says this, break me and die. But to Christ it says this, keep me and die. Keep me and die. Keep me and you'll die, dear ones. This is our true, our true go-between, our true mediator. The one that Jesus is, he, he totally feel, fills out what Moses himself pictured there. And because of him, the gap is closed. We're free to live as free people after God's own ways. I want to read you one last scripture to leave you with. And that is this. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul writes this, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is saying this, that in Christ, the law finds its fulfillment, its completing. That in him is that completing for righteousness for those who believe. Such that all of the promises that Christ acquires are ours on his behalf. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing news for us today. Well, I leave you there. I ask that God would maybe show you his grace even more and more through this wonderful book of Exodus, that you have been set free to worship and to delight in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us to yourself, that you deliver us. And from that deliverance, there can be real obedience a real holiness that comes because we've been set free by this principle of love for us. Would you help us now to see that in a word form, but also, Lord, as we go to the table, open our eyes to teach us more about this marvelous grace that comes to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.